Please remain standing as we pray together. Holy Spirit, you have been so faithful week after week to bring the power of the Word of God to bear on our lives. You have spoken words of healing and transformation and comfort and challenge. Lord, you've corrected us. You've encouraged us. We, we are so thankful, Lord. We know these are all gifts that come from you. And so, Lord, we come again um, empty-handed, seeking that you would fill us with the good things of the gospel. Lord, this is such a precious, precious passage from Luke's gospel. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that the richness and sweetness of your mercy that flows out of every word would go deep into our hearts and continue to bring gospel transformation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. There are passages, many passages in Scripture where you, when you come to them as a preacher of God's Word, you, your prayer is basically, don't let me mess this up. I mean, it's so beautiful, it's so powerful in and of itself. Just reading the story of this woman who anointed Jesus' feet with ointment and or in her tears and wiped his feet with her hair is such a moving depiction of someone who has encountered forgiveness through Jesus Christ. I just don't want to mess this up. It's a beautiful thing. As a matter of fact, I think if there has been a theme in this past week in pastoral ministry, at least for me, it has been the theme of mercy. I keep encountering people who have experienced God's overflowing, undeserved mercy. And here's the thing about mercy, y'all, is that you really do have to be a sinner to experience it. It's not mercy if you don't need it. It's mercy because we do need it. We have all gone astray like sheep. We are people who are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, and yet we have received mercy upon mercy upon mercy. And I've seen that this week in pastoral encounters, and it's reminded me of the mercy I have received. God's overflowing, undeserved mercy that rolls down from the great mountain peak of his love is on display in our lives, and it is supremely on display in this gospel text this morning. Now, much of what goes on in the passage that we hear from Luke's gospel today in Luke chapter 7 happens outside of the events that are recorded here. But we know they did happen because of what occurs in the written narrative. In other words, what's written in this narrative would not make sense if we did not assume certain things had already happened outside of the narrative. Suppose that you got a text from your spouse that they had got a speeding ticket on the way to work. You would not need to be told that they were driving the car. Because getting a speeding ticket doesn't make sense. If Well, maybe they're a really fast cyclist, I don't know. But generally speaking, it doesn't make sense unless you're driving a car. So you know without having been told that part of the story what is going on. And in order to understand the events of Luke chapter 7, we need to know what was happening that set up this story in the very first place. And in order to see, to know what has occurred prior to this text, we have to do what we have done in the past. We call it putting on our Middle Eastern eyes. We have to put on our Middle Eastern eyes and see this in the cultural context of the Near East in the first century. 
Now, we know that the woman had heard Jesus preach the gospel of the kingdom. And we know that she had heard that God welcomes sinners. We know that she's been transformed by Christ's love for sinners and outcasts and that her sins have already been forgiven. We know that because it is in the text. The phrasing here is in the perfect tense when Jesus turns to the woman and he says to her, your sin, it says, your sins are forgiven. It's actually, your sins have been forgiven. Arab Christian commentator, and I just love saying this name, Ibn al-Taib, like Muadib. <laughs> uh, oh, so there's only a few dune geeks in here. So Ibn al-Taib, writing in Baghdad in the 11th century. Did you know there were Christian commentators living in Baghdad, Arab Christian commentators, in the 11th century? Well, there were. And Ibn al-Taib has written this wonderful commentary on the Gospels that's now just becoming more available to us in the West for the very first time. But he writes this, There is no doubt that the woman previously heard the preaching of the Christ and was deeply moved by it and believed and repented and, and, repented and was anticipating a chance to make visible her thanks to the Christ. But this is not the way that the rabbis had taught God offers forgiveness. The way the woman had experienced forgiveness and the way the rabbis taught that God offers forgiveness were not the same thing. The rabbis taught that, yes, indeed, contrition, which is heartfelt sorrow over sin, and repentance, which involves turning away for sin, those were key elements. But to that, the rabbis added the need to make reparations. And because in this woman's case of the type of sins that she had committed evidently, she would have been most likely told by the rabbis that it was impossible for her to make restitution. It was impossible for her to make reparation. In other words, she is, in their eyes, a lost cause. But Jesus demonstrated the love of God that welcomed and even ate with sinners, and this revolutionized her life. So here's the scene. Jesus has been invited to this, the home of Simon the Pharisee for a meal. The woman, by the way, just to kind of give you a little further, deeper background on this text, Kenneth Bailey, who is one of my favorite commentators, and he is the one who helps me see the scriptures through uh, Middle Eastern eyes, had spent many years, decades in the Middle East, speaks Arab Arabic without any, any uh, American accent at all. Um, he, he says that in his view, in his commentary on Luke, uh, that probably based on how this text is written in the Greek, there are so many things that show that it's a direct translation from Hebrew or Aramaic. He thinks that Luke received this text, this, this pericope, this little story, literally in written form. Someone had written it down, and Luke tram- translates it into the Greek, and he gives us this scene. So here's the scene. Jesus has been invited to the home of Simon the Pharisee for a meal. The woman is allowed to enter Simon's home, and that's not unusual because the people of the land and the outcasts were often allowed to sit in the room if a Pharisee was having a banquet to sit over against the wall when such a meal was taking place with the hope that they might hear pearls of wisdom drop from the lips of rabbis to improve themselves accordingly. She had come 
Evidently, and this is what Al-Tayyib indicates, and obviously she's prepared, she has come to show her gratitude, probably by anointing Jesus' hands and maybe his head with perfume, which was a custom in entering someone's house, especially at a banquet, was to have a servant come and anoint that person's hands with olive oil and water and wash them off and to anoint the person's head with oil as well as a part of preparation to feast. That was common courtesy. But her intentions to do that are overtaken by events. Jesus has been invited to this party, and the purpose of the party given by Simon and the other Pharisees, Simon and his buddies, is twofold. There are two purposes here. First of all, they want to have this banquet in order to to put Jesus in a situation in which the Pharisees and his buddies could test him to see if he was genuinely a prophet which they definitely did not think Jesus was. We know that because it's in the text. If this man were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is that's touching him. And the second reason that they have invited him was a calculated intent to put this upstart Jesus in his place and to publicly humiliate him. We know that they meant to humiliate Jesus because they systematically snubbed him at every point Demand, where Middle Eastern courtesy demanded hospitality and where it demanded certain actions, those were omitted. There was no kiss of peace offered to Jesus. And even to this day, if you are in a Middle Eastern country and you greet someone, many times men greet men with a kiss of peace. There's a, and depending on which uh, culture you're in, there's a kiss on one cheek and a kiss on another cheek and a kiss on one cheek, and I can't ever figure out which culture I'm in. I'm kissing the wrong cheek and doing it too many times or too few. It's awkward. It happens. But that's still a sign of welcome and courtesy. There was no olive oil given for the washing of hands and feet. Olive oil was the soap of that day, and every home had it, and a servant usually would have been there to provide the olive oil. And then there was no water given to wash the feet of the person who had come in to wash Jesus' feet. This was a calculated insult, and everyone in that banquet knew it. A college friend of mine told me of a similar situation years ago. His younger brother was getting married, and my friend, who I'll call Robert, had been married for a few years, and he and his wife had two small children at home. Robert and his wife and his children had made life choices based on their commitment to Jesus Christ that his nominally Christian family did not approve of. They were just a little too extreme in their following of Jesus. So when he and his family, Robert and his wife and children, were seated at the wedding banquet, his his younger brother, his mom and his dad, and his other sibling were seated at the family table where he and his family, while he, Robert, and his family were shuttled off to a table in the corner. What's more, his cousin and his live-in girlfriend were seated next to his brother and his new wife. This was a calculated insult directed at my friend because he had made life choices on his commitment, because of his commitment to Jesus Christ, and his family wanted to show their disapproval. Everyone in that room knew that my friend and his wife and children were being shamed. Everyone in the room with Jesus knew that he was being shamed. That's what was happening to Jesus. He was being put to public shame for his talk of God's love for sinners and for welcoming and eating with sinners. 
And that's when this woman does something outrageous, something that she had not planned to do, something that reveals that she has been completely reformed, and not by keeping the Pharisees' rules and regulations, but by a by relationship with a loving God through Jesus Christ, this woman's life has been revolutionized. She witnesses this public put-down of Jesus. And her heart breaks. She is not weeping because of her sin. She has been forgiven her sin already. She is weeping because her heart is breaking because she sees the one who loved her unconditionally, who called her out of darkness and into God's light, who had restored life where there was no hope before, who did not see her as a lost cause, but as a precious child of God. She saw that man humiliated, and it broke her heart, and the tears began to flow down her face. How can they do this to the man who changed me? How can they do do this to the man who accepted me and loved me and saw me as a child of God when other people like the Pharisee only saw filth? And she begins to weep and she does the unthinkable. Jesus is reclining, it says, at the table. What does that mean? Well, if you haven't watched enough PBS, period shows of Romans sitting around the table. The way that you ate in this era was that you reclined at what's called a, a triclinium, which is a, basically a three-sided couch, and you propped yourself up on your left elbow. Your feet were behind you. You literally eat laying down, which seems to make lots of sense to me, <laughs> while servants flitter about. Tending to your, can I peel a grape for you? Yes, you can. You're propped up on your elbow and you're eating with your right hand and you're having a conversation and everyone's facing towards the middle of the triclinium and your feet are out towards the back. So this woman had anticipated anointing probably Jesus's head or his, his hands, but those aren't available to her now, just his feet. So she does what she can. She comes up behind his outstretched feet She lets the tears fall from her face onto Jesus' feet. And because there is no towel, she lets down her hair. And you need to know that this was an outrageous and provocative act. A Jewish woman of this day would only let her hair be seen down and unbound by her husband in the most intimate of settings. As a matter of fact, one commentator indicates that by this action, she is making a lifetime commitment of loyalty to Jesus. In her love for Christ, she is forgetful of her own dignity. As she lets down her hair, the only person in her world right now is Jesus Christ. God's unconditional loved and received transforms lives and revolutionizes behavior. Folks, listen to me. So when the, the model that I grew up with uh, in church back when we were a, you know, a, a Christian, Judeo-Christian culture basically was this, is that um, to become a part of a church, you, first of all, you had to, you believed, you had to believe the right stuff. Then you had to behave the right way And then you were allowed to belong. But the way Jesus does this is that he makes her belong. And then she believes. And then her behavior is transformed. 
God's unmerited love and favor, God's grace changes this woman's life. And that's the way all of us who have genuinely encountered Jesus Christ as a forgiving, loving Lord, that's how it happens to all of us. The scripture says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, we love him because he first loved us. Loving him was not our idea first. He was loving us before we loved him. This woman is indeed a genuine grade A sinner. Her sin isn't minimized. It's not rationalized. In fact, it's pointed out. You see, for her now, for Jesus, her sin is the grand canvas upon which the mercy of God is painted. Her sin is the breathtaking, astonishing context in which the redeeming, restoring love of God is made manifest. Outrageous mercy and grace invoke outrageous love and devotion. Simon, I have something to say to you. Now, if you heard this in that culture, someone says, Simon, I have somewhat to say to thee. You would know that you were in for a hard saying. And he says, say it, teacher. There were two men who owed money to one man, to a, ta- to, a, to a money lender. One owed 50 denarii and one owed 500 denarii. But since they could not pay, the, the money lender forgave them both their debts. Which one do you think loved the money lender more? Teacher, I suppose, <laughs> he says it like that, I suppose the one who was forgiven the most. You have judged rightly, Simon. Being forgiven much makes us love much. I love being around people who have and who realize they have been radically forgiven and they respond with outrageous love and devotion. And when my zeal for Christ is flagging, it flags because I forget how much mercy I have received. Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? I don't know if you can remember all the way back, long, long ago, last Sunday, (laughs) that the woman, the widow of Nain is heading out of the town and her son who is dead is on the bier. And it says, and Jesus saw her. In Luke's gospel, Being seen by God, being seen by Jesus, is a significant statement. Jesus says, do you see this woman? Being seen by God, being seen by Jesus is key in Luke's gospel. Being seen means that God has regard for the estate in which that person is in and yet sees that individual, whether they are a grieving mother or a sinful woman, as a precious child of God created in his image. And the reality is that the Pharisee has never seen that woman. He sees a whore. He hasn't seen that woman. He sees a sinner. Jesus sees a woman. Jesus sees someone who is infinitely precious. He sees you. He doesn't see your mistakes. He doesn't mitigate them. He says, do you see this woman? Her sins, who are, her sins which are many, 
There's no denial of the reality of her brokenness. But that's not what defines her. And it's not what defines you. Not in God's eyes. Your mistakes are not who you are. You know, really, there were two, two types of sinners in Simon's household that evening. There were the lawkeepers and the lawbreakers, but they were all sinners. There were two kinds of sinners in Simon's household that evening. There, were the, there was the forgiven sinner, and there were the unrepentant sinners. They were all sinners. One sinner had received the good news, and genuinely experiencing God's love makes that person even more aware of the gravity of their sin, which in turn generates even greater gratitude, and that needs to happen to me and to you as well. If we could see ourselves and see what God has forgiven in us, it would, we be, it, what happens is I see myself as God has seen me. Your sins, which are many, have been forgiven. My response is to love and thank God more, which means I I'm brought into his holy presence. I'm, I'm confronted with the holiness of God, which means I cast my eyes back to my own sin and realize just how grave it was. And then I realize how merciful he's been even more. And then it makes me praise him more and it draws me closer to him again. And it just goes on and on and on. And God is more and more glorified when we recognize his mercy. Annie Lobert, um, maybe you saw the documentary, a 2011 documentary on human trafficking called Nefarious Merchant of Souls. If you haven't watched it, I, I recommend it. Uh, some people have criticized it because it simplifies things or whatever. Well, you can't do everything in a two-hour documentary. At least it makes people aware of human trafficking, especially sex industry human trafficking. Annie Lobert tells her story in that documentary. She had chosen to go into prostitution to be a high-class call girl in Las Vegas. She wanted to do it because she saw it as the way to get the money, the houses, the cars that she wanted. But before long, she, was in, she ended up being owned by a pimp. And what had looked like a way to get houses and cars and power and independence as a woman ended up being the road to cancer, to being someone's property, and finally to drug addiction. She started freebasing cocaine as things got worse, and then she overdosed, and then she said this. She said, there was blackness all around me. I couldn't see anything. I couldn't hear anything. She said, all of a sudden I thought, crap, <laughs> I'm dying. And in that moment, the only thing she could remember was the name Jesus. She said, all I could think about was God. I, I saw my life literally flash before my eyes, and I called upon his name, and I just said, Jesus, Jesus, I'm alone. I'm sorry. Please come get me. Please come save me from myself. I'm sorry I'm a prostitute. I was so ashamed. When she came to in the hospital, the physician came to her and said, you are a lucky young woman. You are so full of drugs, you should be dead, and you're allergic to narcotics. God has got to be with you. And that moment started Annie's journey to Jesus. And as she began, <laughs> I'll, tell you, I'll tell you what she says in her testimony in one place that was written. She said, I started listening to Joyce Myers. Famous Anglican theologian. 
you know what? God used Joyce Myers. And she heard how much God loved her through this woman. And at one point she cried out, Lord, I just want to see you. I want to see the one who has loved me. I just want to see you with my own eyes. She said, he granted me a dream. And it was, Jesus was there with me. He looked me in the eyes and he said, I loved you. I love you. You are healed. You are whole. You are delivered. And it was just like this fire was lit in me. I realized that God loves me, that no matter what I've done, the mistakes I've made, the people I've hurt, he still loves me and he can make something of my life. And since then, the rest of Annie's life, that would have been about 2008, the rest of Annie's life has been about serving women in the sex industry and introducing them to Jesus. She has a controversial name for her, uh, her ministry, Hookers for Jesus. Some people don't appreciate that, but hookers understand it. And it was through Annie's endless efforts to rescue women and give them hope for their futures that Destiny House was officially founded. Destiny House is a safe place for women to live while healing from the serious trauma of being sex trafficked. In fact, the statistics for post-traumatic sex or post-traumatic stress disorder for sex workers is at the same level as it is for combat veterans around 62%. The love of God revolutionized Annie's life. The love of God revolutionized this woman, this sinful woman's life. And her response was extravagant love. I want to ask you something, brothers and sisters. Do you know the extravagant love of God? Have you encountered that? Have you... Have you made the transition from being the self-righteous Pharisee to the one that recognizes that you owe a debt you cannot pay? There are things in your life, and some of us know this, and the ones that know this are actually the ones in the best place this morning. I can never go back and fix what I have done. But I have a God who loves and forgives me, who eats with sinners who welcomes forgiven sinners to a meal every Sunday. The only people who are allowed to eat at this table are forgiven sinners, like me. He loves you infinitely. When was the last time you recognized that and poured out upon his feet tears of thankfulness and joy? When was the last time you anointed him, just his feet, with praise from the heart for what he has done for you? This week, the theme has been mercy in every encounter I've had, just about. Some of you are thinking, yes, that was kind of what we talked about. I'm convinced that when we come into God's presence, when he returns, when Christ returns, or when we are called home to be with him, One of the first things that will be revealed to us is how much mercy we have indeed received. When we are are escorted into the king's presence, the servant that brings us in will be his mercy. And we will be glorifying God for that mercy forever and ever.
in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.